0: Economic
2: indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up.
1: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
1: How are you doing there? It is David. We're going into week nine of a lockdown. It has been a very unusual week in this house, not least because the leaving cert was cancelled. I know it has actually knocked the stuffing out of lots of people. We will chat about that. How are you doing? I hope all is good in your world. I'm, again, looking down the tube at my old mate, Mr. Davis. How are you, head?
2: Hey, Mike. What's the crack?
1: The crack is all good. I'm I'm uh, slowly turning into uh, an alcoholic. <laughs> I saw a great meme, which was, for God's sake, would you open the pubs to prevent me turning into an alcoholic? <laughs> yeah.
2: It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm the same. Although we have a regime at home, which is we're trying, we're trying really hard just to have, you know, a couple of nights off. It's not working too good. It's very hard, isn't it? It's very hard. It is
1: very, very hard. I was talking uh, only last night to uh, my own mate. That's the great thing. You're talking to mates all around the world. Uh, Martín who the Argentinian guy. Yeah, yeah who was the youngest economics minister in Argentina, he always says, I'm not sure if that was a good thing. You know, most <laughs> CVs, that'll be a great thing. But I said, how are you? He said, "He said I'm great, I'm great. I'm just turned into an alcoholic. He said, I'm... <laughs>
2: He's got nice wine down there,
1: though. Very nice wine. But apart from that, I am in good form. And of course, this weekend, the news that rocked this house was the leaving insert. I uh,
2: hear... Yeah. And, and good old Cal, he must be over the moon. He is. It's like, he is like the dog with five dicks. Uh, he is. All his Christmases came at once. He's in great form. Could you imagine if that happened back in 1985? Oh man, in our day. 1985, yeah. it, I would have been over, the, I had no interest. And I'd be like very much like Cal. Well, sure. Like I, I liked Sir so much. I did it, I did it twice.
1: <laughs> Made a haze. Well, of it. You're always a bit taken, you know? <laughs> it's like your man nothing going on in his head. But look, if it had happened in our day, it's a, it's a, it's a, we'll talk about it before we get in. We'll talk about it because it is tricky. I know there are lots and lots of people for whom this is a disaster who have studied and swatted and paced themselves. Yeah. And this is really psychologically very difficult for them. I also know there's lots of people who would have been a bit like us too. Well, I was a crammer. You weren't even a crammer. You didn't yeah. even bother crammer. Yeah, well, yeah.
2: I, I just, I was elsewhere in my head. But that's totally cool. Yeah, but, the, you know, as you know, I went back to college later and yeah. I was ready for it then.
1: Yeah. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That, yeah. You know, in the same way as teenagers grow at different times, people's brains grow yeah. and their appreciation, their emotion and intelligence.
2: All that sort of stuff. So, but, but there are those guys that I feel sorry for now that, you know, especially if they're doing this predictive results, yeah. where those guys that probably did a bit shite in the mocks. Yeah, like which like, is basically loads of people. Yeah. yeah. And, and if, then we're going to cram and then we're going to yeah, push themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're jacks now. That strategy is out the window. Well, maybe we should stand back and have a look.
1: The Leaving Cert as an exam seems to me to be very unidimensional, not at all reflective of the world around us and rewards a certain type of brain and punishes another type of brain. Lucy described the leaving surgery. She said, dad, it's like a big pub quiz. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like who else? You know, so you memorise. So I think that maybe this would allow people stop and pause and say, okay, if we can cancel this for one year, we can certainly modify it and we can change it. And when I look at school and when I look at schooling, I see a whole edifice that rewards the conventional type of thinker, the linear thinker who's able to read, to absorb, to put the information in their head in a kind of compartment. And then on a sunny day in June, write might be Jesus and do it in a logical way. Yeah. Now that is a form of intelligence.
2: Yeah. You kind of, it's a training almost. You train to peak like the way an Olympian would would train and peak just at the Olympics. The way you used to do in the community games. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Peaking. He's a a specimen. He's a specimen. (laughs) Actually, I remember on one of those sports days, I was doing a race and you actually ran beside me the whole, ra- whole race I'd... with a duffel coat on you <laughs> and actually beat me.
1: <laughs> Encouraging you. <laughs> I know you were. I know. God almighty. That's that's friendship <laughs> for you. Anyway, but we come back to the leading side It's it's interesting. This type of brain, this linear brain is rewarded and all the other kids are punished. And this goes on for a while. And this is why. So the brains that aren't good at absorbing information are regarded as lesser intelligence than the brains that are now think about the way this changes society so every single year from a very young age the linear brain is told you're clever the lateral brain is told you're not clever you have you can't do exams yeah and this is why i think we end up in a very strange situation as we get older because we understand there are thousands of types of intelligence. There's not just one type of intelligence. And also it means that walking around every country all the time, there are thousands of incredibly clever people who left school feeling stupid. But the corollary is also the case. There are thousands of actually quite stupid people who left school Mm -hmm. feeling very clever because what they were good at was elevated as being fantastically yeah. important. Now on this issue John, I read a couple of years ago an amazing book by a British labor politician from the 1950s right. called The Rise of the Meritocracy. He was a guy called Michael Young. Yeah. And you know this word the meritocracy, we believe now that the meritocracy is a good thing, yeah. you merit, right? Yeah. You know, he was right at the time he said no this is a dangerous thing. He was saying the meritocracy. So basically meritocracy is IQ, so a yeah. certain type of intelligence yeah, yeah. plus effort equals merit. Yeah. That was his his idea, yeah. right? And the meritocracy is basically the exam passing class. Mm. And what we've turned into in the West is we have we look, and he was warning this, and the book is amazing. It was written in the 50s, and it's written from the vantage point of 2030 and people looking back. And trying to understand who took over societies. Yeah. Who replaced the oligarchy? Who replaced the aristocracy? And he was saying the meritocracy replaced them, which was that we became beholden to the exam. We are beholden to the exam passing class. The people for whom the leaving cert is crucially important. They become elevated. And worse still, if you believe... So, for example, I would have said, if you were an aristocrat years ago, Right. Deep down, you knew I'm the jammiest fucker here. <laughs> I don't deserve this, man. And I've got all the goodies. Yeah, and yeah. But frankly, it was the accident of birth. I just happened to be born yeah, yeah. into this, you know. Big old house. Yeah, big house thinking, man, this is great, okay. <laughs> so deep down, the aristocracy knew that they didn't merit it. So that's why they threw up all sorts of laws and legislations and caste systems and everything to try and copper bottom the fact that they won the lottery.
2: Right, okay. Think
1: about the meritocracy. If you believe that you are at the top because you are special, because the system has produced you and you merit it, yeah. then you become incredibly tone deaf to the concerns of those around you because you believe, like Mourinho, that you're the special one.
2: But also they feel they have they can justify that precisely by the effort that they've put in. By the
1: effort. So, for example, if you look at, you know, for example, Ivy School, Ivy League, graduates in America, right, mm. who have worked a million hours a day or whatever, you know, to become the top lawyer, right? They can almost in their head justify the inequality of their position by virtue of the fact that, well, you know what? It's merit. It's IQ yeah. plus mammoth effort equals merit. And what Michael Young was warning in the 50s was the rise of the meritocracy will not lead to a benighted, understanding, benign class at the top, but a very narrow, very reactive, very self-aggrandizing class at the top. And he was right.
2: Yeah, and this is essentially what America, for instance, is based on. Certainly Insofar in the Democratic as, Party. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean, is in the Democratic Party, it's kind of like, I've put in the effort... You can do this too if you put in the same amount of effort, which is not entirely true. Well, I think the issue with the meritocracy and going back to the
1: leaving cert is the disposition of the exam passing class. Yeah. Right. Do you remember in school? Right. Even at the very very start of school, fellas would get a star for being able to recite Hamlet or Irish or whatever. Right. Now, what I was (laughs) doing. One of them. I only got one of them because my mom was a teacher. <laughs> yeah. But do, do you see what I mean? And what it did, it sent a signal to all the other people in the class that this is the special person, girl or boy. Yeah. And all the rest of you are really also rands in the game, right? Yeah. Now, reinforce that. And then you get a, a you know, 500, po- 600 points in your leaving search, right? We, we're, we're so old, we did it in old money. Yeah. Boys are like 12 or 13
2: That's or something. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> None of this new money. We were a pre decimal <laughs> leaving search, right? And then you go in and you go to college and you do really well in college. And then you get a graduate trainee position in
2: art or Cox yeah. or you do the KPMG.
1: Milk you did Milk Round, la la la. And you begin to think that you're special. And then something really weird happens in life, which is called confirmation bias in economics, which is that we end up surrounding ourselves by people who confirm our biases. Yes. And so the clever people, the exam passing class, end up surrounding them with other people who did well in exams. And they're all united by this idea that we are the exam passers. We're the people who got A's. And if you get A's in all your exams and your entire status as an individual is wrapped up in always being right, then you have a serious problem with being wrong. But we also understand as humans that we're only learning when we're wrong. Because when you're right, you know the stuff. So so it's when you can say, I'm wrong, then you begin the process of learning. So actual fact, what happens in the exam passing class is they end up not learning very much at all. And when they get to the very top, because they all think the same, you have this group think. And we're seeing this right now with COVID. Economics is full of this. We can't do that because we've never done it before. You can't do that because there's a rule here. And all of these exam passers who stem from the leaving cert obsession with the point system, which is actually sourced in the way in which we teach kids and say, this type of intelligence is great. This type of intelligence, we don't recognize. All leads to groupthink at the very top. And then when faced with something mental, like a pandemic, rather than actually looking at an expansive menu of economic and our societal tools to deal with it, the menu gets smaller.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And we start with this idea of, Tina, there is no alternative. That's what you hear all the time. And the only people who say that there is no alternative, ironically, are not uneducated people. They're actually hyper-educated people. And they believe there's a one unique idea and one unique way. And I think this book, Michael Young's book, On the Rise of the Meritocracy, Right. And again, what it does is it shatters the myth that has, well, the myth that has come to pass that the meritocracy is something good. And what it says is the meritocracy is something terrifying. Mm. And what it does is it contrasts the entitlement of those who believe they are on top because they merit it in contrast to those who who know they're on top because they were fortunate enough. And what it's talking about is a new social revolution a new way in which we run democracies, a new way in which we analyse the ruling class mm. and say that, you know what, just passing exams is not enough. Yeah, That yeah. doesn't entitle you to run the KIP. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for it.
2: Absolutely. And you know in that equation of effort and IQ equals merit, mm-hmm. one thing that I always felt in school was that there was never enough proper out-of-the-box thinking, creative thinking, and problem solving, apart from your regular maths no, and there was, shit like there that. Was no,
1: but, yeah, there was no problem solving. Yeah, In fact, the avoidance of problem solving is actually what defines our education system, because it says there is one right answer. And we know, as we get older, that there are hundreds of right answers to the same question. And this goes back to our evolutionary sense that basically the world is always changing and always different. But if you decide that there's one right answer, then what you're doing is you're excluding all the other possibilities. And that makes you incredibly fragile in the face of enormous challenges, both emotional challenges, physical, intellectual, and financial, and all that sort of stuff. And that, I think, so to come back to the leaving search, right, Mm. I can understand enormously how certain people and various different pupils and parents and yada yada are reacting differently. But I think that it may well be a significant moment where we can reflect and say, okay, is the leaving cert the be all and end all? I don't think it is. And I think my daughter's description of a large memory test, like a pub quiz, a pub quiz without Google, <laughs> right, because we all know the type of person who does a pub quiz and beer, and say exactly goes to the Jacks and says, "Ooh,
2: I'll tell you about the theory of relativity." Yeah, but this this whole fiasco of the leaving cert, you know, while cancelling it kind of suits some people and not others, the problem for me was always the lack of decision. And you know, it's an anxious time for all oh, students at that time. I believe it, and then that coupled with the added anxiety of of COVID and in lockdown. And, you know, that's hard on everyone. You know, and then it just raises the whole issue of mental health. And I've heard the likes of Brezzy and As I Am talk about this. But it was the lack of decision that really added to this. And it was unnecessary.
1: It's almost as if the system is more important than the human. Exactly. That save the system, irrespective of how it plays out, Inside the heads of the very humans you're supposed to be actually engaging with. Yeah. Get on and make a thinking decision. And what happens is, John, what, I, what freaks me out is that you've kids, I have kids. The idea that at the end of their school system, they would be reduced to a number. I am a 400 pointer or a 500 pointer or a yeah. 300 pointer or a 600 yeah, pointer. Yeah, yeah. It's bonkers. Yeah. So let's look at it as maybe a moment. That the system crashed. It wouldn't have happened if it had not been for COVID. And long term, there could be some great benefits because the Germans have a great expression (laughs) called the fact idiot. It's basically an idiot with facts, right? And it's the type of person, you see it in academics a lot, who know a huge amount about their own subject and nothing about the rest of the world. And they're not even interested in the worst. Our education system produces those Whereas I think the much more interesting person is the adapter, the person who adapts. And the Italians have a great expression for that, which is a tutto logo, a person who knows a lot about everything. Tutto logo. Tutto, and the best tutto logo in the whole place, Umberto Eco, the Italian yeah. writer who yeah. knew about everything. You could talk yeah. about football and politics and sex and drugs and rock and roll and philosophy and everything. Yeah, Perfect. Great company, Yeah, right? So the fact idiot... Versus the Tutto Logo, right? This is what it's all about. Nice. And maybe if the education system genuflected more to the Tutto Logo, there was a little bit about everything and whatever. Rather than the fact idiot, we'd have a better society. And faced with something like COVID, we'd have a better response. This is our Schumpeter slot. You know that we have championed uh, Joseph Schumpeter. The economists, whose basic idea was that the economy continues to evolve all the time. It's almost like an evolutionary organism rather than something that is static. And what it's driven by is businesses, big and small, adapting, changing, mutating almost, and trying to make a proper business, a bit of money, and create some value during crazy times like this pandemic. And luckily for us, we have on the line a fantastic business owner, Lisa McKenna of McKenna and Co. Solicitors. Lisa, how are you?
3: I'm good, David. Thanks so much for having me. How are you?
1: I am in flying form, actually, despite all. Now, tell me what, 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 what before I get into the, the Shumterian moment of innovation in the pandemic. You're a female-led solicitor company. Tell me about that.
3: Yes. Yeah, so. My name is Lisa McKenna. I'm the principal solicitor of my own female-led law firm, McKenna & Co. We're located in Upper Pembroke Street in Dublin too. So I set up my own law firm when I was 30 years of age and I'm three years in business this November. So I worked for both small and large firms before setting up on my own and there was a huge number of women in the legal profession. We actually outweighed the profession by 5% over males. However, as a female, there was fewer opportunities for leadership, and the glass ceiling is still firmly in place um, in, in the legal profession. Is
1: it? That's really interesting because my missus now, who you might have been heard refer to during the fall, yeah. she's a recovering <laughs> lawyer, right? She's she's done. Yeah. But she also said that to me. So is that 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 basically, you have a huge amount of young women in the legal profession, yeah. and yet a significant majority are blokes.
3: Unfortunately, that's the sad reality. And yes, there is females in there, but the majority on the senior level are males. So I I always knew that glass ceiling was there. The last law firm I worked for was a larger firm. It was a bit more difficult to progress to the senior level. So I knew by going out on my own, there'd be no limits or no restrictions on what I could do.
1: And was the first thing you did say, listen, what we're going to have is we're going to have women leading this firm.
3: Yes, and... It was important for me, I suppose, to create a path for other females to go out and do the same thing because they know that they're just not getting their fulfillment in the larger firms, even at that senior level.
1: Do you think that women come at the law, let's say so much of the law is kind of conflict resolution between clients and and whatever, the lawyers in the middle. Do you think that women come at the law slightly differently to men? Do you think they think differently in this regard?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think females come at it very different. Females' leadership is hugely important to our firm. We, we invest in it heavily, both me and the staff. So I do believe females have a different perspective on how they deal with matters, how they apply empathy, personality, humanity um, to a lot of situations.
1: Now, listen, let's talk about COVID, the pandemic. What have you done in the last couple of weeks to react to what obviously is a big slump in your business, I presume?
3: Yeah, so uh, we do a lot of property law, real estate law work. So we lost many clients as a result, clients being in fear that property prices had dropped and there was so much uncertainty around the true value of real estate. So it, it created this huge difficulty of negativity, fear. And as we know, when negativity and fear surround us, that creates the difficulty of this downturn in the property market. So what we done, we knew we had downtime, so we wanted to create some positivity and give back, and giving back is something that's so important to us. So we had this initiative called the Free Will Week. So this is where we drafted almost 100 wills for people free of charge with no cost, and we're still drafting them, in fact, albeit the initiative has just ended this week. And this gave the opportunity, we went online, we went on Zoom calls with clients, phone calls. We drafted their will, put all their affairs in order online. And a lot of clients came back to us. They weren't paying us, but what they'd done was a lot of them donated to a number of charities. So our act of kindness actually created a ripple effect of kindness to other charities.
1: That is brilliant. Listen, Lisa McKenna of McKenna and Co-Solicitors. Thank you so much. And we will hopefully hear more from you in the future.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Um, it was great to talk to you. And um, thanks so much for this opportunity to small businesses
1: also. Great stuff, Lisa. Listen, Take care of yourself. Cheers. Thank you. Just on the Schumpeter slot there, we have been overwhelmed by the response. Hundreds of companies, all with their own story, all reinventing themselves. So we're going to try to get to as many of these extraordinary stories, extraordinary companies, if we can. But in the meantime, we're going to put up each company and a little blurb about what they're doing to reinvent themselves on our Patreon page so you can see the companies and what they're up to and that's at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams
0: A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance.
2: So, Mark, we've spoken an awful lot in the last few weeks about how different countries are handling COVID through lockdowns and the bailouts and all those measures that yeah, they're yeah, yeah, yeah. that they're introducing. But one sector that we haven't actually looked at is the developing world. Because they've less options than, they than have, ourselves.
1: Well, I mean, we're talking about, you know, basically three quarters of the world's population yeah.
2: are the developing world. Yeah.
1: And they have much less access to the same sort of economic levers that we have. Yeah. So I'll tell you what we'll do, John. Why don't we go directly to the development world? Not have you and I sitting about this talking in Dublin. Let's go to the Caribbean. Let's go down to Trinidad and talk to a person who I think is one of the greatest economists, greatest explainers of economics out there, wonderful economists. She's also a woman, which is, uh, as I said to you before, economics needs more women. Economics doesn't have enough yeah. women. Marla Dukaram, we're going to get her up on the line and we're going to chat to her now. Marla, how are you?
0: Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me and for telling such wonderful lies about me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell me, tell me. Tell me about what, what is happening down the Caribbean. How is this affected? I know you can't talk about the Caribbean as one area, but how has it yeah. affected the region?
0: So as you would know, most of us are very heavily dependent on tourism. As a matter of fact, as a region, the Caribbean is the most dependent region in the world on tourism. And so we've had a sudden stop basically in the tourism sector, as you can imagine. All flights have been grounded. People don't want to travel and people have a phobia that I think will last maybe a year or more of getting on planes and getting on cruise ships. There are some countries that eighty percent of their economy is driven by tourism, and so these economies, as you can imagine, have been hit really hard where you have I would imagine maybe about fifty percent right now unemployment in some of these countries and people out of out of work. and you layer on top of that the fact that the economies in the first place were not in most cases were not the strongest because the government didn't have a lot of fiscal space and the sense that you know, debt levels are high. We, we depend a lot on, on activity with, with the outside world. We are very open economies. There's not a lot of domestic economic activity that drives these economies. We rely on tourists, we rely on foreign direct investment, we rely heavily on remittances as well from, from workers that have left the Caribbean to go abroad. And the World Bank has estimated that remittances will decline by 20%, because if you have 27 million people out of work in the US, for example, they can no longer send money back home. So we've been hit by several angles, but even before this happened, we had, you know, so to speak, underlying conditions of, you know, weak economic growth in many countries, high unemployment, high levels of debt, To the extent that the Caribbean has been appealing at the levels of the World Bank and the IMF and OECD appealing for debt forgiveness now for some of these countries that qualify because we just cannot carry this burden. And the governments don't have the space, the fiscal space to spend the money they need to spend on testing and on treating people who are affected by COVID-19.
1: Well, it's interesting because Irish people will will understand remittances maybe better than most Europeans because believe it or not for the first about 50 or 60 years of the independence of this country our balance of payments was balanced by remittances by Irish people sending money home otherwise right. we would have we would have actually have had consistent currency crisis consistency balance of payments crisis consistent debt crisis we would have had so I, we can we really feel we understand what you mean when you talk about remittances because remittances were a massive thing here, but what do you think is going to happen? Like, if you break it up, can you break it up the Caribbean between like Jamaica and then maybe Cuba and then maybe okay. Trinidad? Where? How does it? How does it actually break down?
0: Well, let me just start by talking about the the so called petro states first because they're a bit different. So you have Guyana, for example, which is the newest oil producing country in the world. Only started producing oil in December, and this year will be well, according to the IMF, the fastest growing economy in the world. was supposed to grow by 86%, if you could believe that, David, this year. And that was reduced to 50 something percent by the IMF based on the fact that oil prices have collapsed. But they are a tremendous outlier in the region. But they have a political stalemate at this point in time. They, I mean, they have an electorate of just about four or 500,000 people, but they still can't finish count all the votes, even though the election was months ago. And one ballot box was found yesterday or the day before to be filled with rainwater. Okay. So you have okay. all, all kinds of political instability there that's going to affect them. And so they're like a really separate case. And in Trinidad, you know, I think, I mean, of course, I'm going to get into huge trouble for saying this, but Trinidad is a petro-state come state to be very honest. Come narco and, state. Yeah. Explain recent developments, that to Explain well, that to you. you have tons of drugs coming out of Latin America, South America, as you know, and Colombia has been, has done a good job of cleaning up its act. But what that has done is it has moved this, um, this trade and the, the, the weapons and the weapons trade and the human trafficking and everything that goes with it into weaker territories. And of course, Venezuela being the weakest in this hemisphere, actually. And so Venezuela is only six miles away from Trinidad at its closest closest point.
1: I'm going to come back to the narco-trafficking in one thing because one of the things the Caribbean, before Mexico became the main conduit for narco-trafficking from Colombia, the Caribbean played that role in the 80s and 90s. Uh, do you think it'll go back to that, that this instability this desperation, this high levels of unemployment, low levels of income, no tourism, naturally people will say, look, where am I going to earn any money? How am I going to survive? And you realize, well, you know what we can do? We can, we can help the Colombians out in, 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 in this trade to the United States. Do you think that is one of the unforeseen consequences of all this?
0: Definitely, there's a risk of that. And you know what? We've never stopped becoming transshipment points. I think it's, it's it's all relative. And maybe the degree to which we were transshipment points in the 80s may have lessened in the 90s and early 2000s. And that's probably increasing now, especially with what's happening in Venezuela and the instability there. Of course, we've seen stories of all kinds of massive amounts of cocaine being found you know, in, in, in the Cayman Islands, in Curaçao, in Trinidad. and So we know that this is still happening, um, but you're right. I think the degree to which it's happening is probably going to accelerate because these people just look for the weakest link and for the country that has the weakest um, security, for example, or the highest level of corruption where they can bribe um, you know, border officials and so on to get their, get their ways through. So that is definitely a high risk. Now I don't know that I necessarily feel like people who were honest, um, law abiding tourism workers will necessarily just.
1: Sure. No, I take your point.. Default, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I take your point.
0: I just, I just, I think it's likely that perhaps governments and government officials who, I suppose, are becoming increasingly desperate, might, might look to form alliances unholy alliances where they may not have in the past whereas you know they may have had loyalty to the us now they're probably looking more to china russia and venezuela and that that alliance now
1: will you explain that to me because that's what i find fascinating uh, the big game in the caribbean but not just the caribbean in mexico and venezuela between mm-hmm. russia china and america how is that all playing out in this COVID crisis and how are the biases changing
0: well, in the first place, you have the u s. basically withdrawing under trump from from the Caribbean in terms of its influence. I mean, globally, right? Yeah, And particularly, you remember that under Obama, there was this rapprochement with with Cuba, and that just there that just collapsed under President Trump. And that kind of uh, tone was set by Trump. Remember, he called us shithole countries, right? <laughs> um, and so that tone has been maintained. And so you would find that there are governments in this region who are not, not in such a hurry to pony up and to have an alliance with the US, especially when there's been that level of um, disrespect. And then you have the Chinese who have been present in this region for a while, but have have consistently ramped up their presence, based on the fact that there was that vacuum left by the U.S., but also based on the fact that we are very strategically placed in the Caribbean, we straddle South America, North America, you know, and Europe as well. When you when you come from Europe to this hemisphere, where the first Barbados is the first country you encounter, right, where the mm-hmm. the easternmost country in the ocean. So. We're strategically placed, and so I think the Chinese are no fools, so they recognize how well-placed we are in terms of having a position in this region that 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 gives you access to, to Latin America and North America. And then on top of that, we have this massive amount of natural resources in Venezuela. they still the largest proven reserves of oil in the world. And then now Guyana recently discovering more oil than Trinidad has ever produced. Suriname also has oil. And they have diamonds and they have gold. I think that Venezuela, Guyana, and Suriname are probably collectively the most resource-rich countries on earth. And that would make Suriname and Guyana, because of their small populations, probably the most resource-rich countries on, on earth on a per capita basis, even though Guyana is still the poorest country, English speaking country in the Western Hemisphere and the poorest after Haiti, period. Wow. And poor countries where you have weak institutions are ripe for the kind of, of intervention, if you will, I'm trying to be polite here, that the That's, Chinese... <laughs> but
1: you're, always, you're always far too polite, Marla. I'm far too polite.
0: You know, so the Chinese have found it relatively easy to come to these governments and say, hey, you know, I'll build you this bridge or this road or this airport or this fanciful um, performing arts center that you don't really need or this hospital in the middle of a cane field that you don't really need and you can pay me for it in 10 years. It's all right.
1: And then they have you.
0: Exactly. You have, they have us by the balls, you
1: know. To coin <laughs> <laughs> a phrase. Listen, Marta, explain to me then about further south. In Latin America, you've got got Venezuela, Colombia, Mm -hmm. but also across the way in Mexico, all these countries, Mm -hmm. and of course, Argentina and Brazil, all these countries need a fair wind globally, right? They need strong demand. Yes. They need to feed into a buzzing Europe and a buzzing America. That's all stopped. So what happens now there?
0: You know, in the first place, you know, as you would notice, there is political instability. Venezuela, for sure, being the poster child for that for the past maybe 20, ten years at least. Brazil, not much better. And you know that whenever there is an economic downturn, there is likely to be the incumbent is likely to lose in any election. And we have quite a few elections coming up. And so the first thing I see happening is that there are going to be all kinds of political upsets in this region. It's a region where institutional strength is not the best in most countries. It's a region where, uh, like you said, we're very export dependent, very open. We do have some large Latin American countries that don't rely as much on exports as some of the smaller ones. But still, relatively speaking, export dependent in terms of their commodities, agriculture, as well as natural resources. And so already we had a situation in Latin America where there's basically been a lost decade where you haven't seen socioeconomic development reach where it could have, And and poverty levels are still very high. Inequality levels are obscene in Latin America. And you have very, very, very unstable, like Guatemala and, and, and Nicaragua, very, very unstable countries that are basically, like I said earlier, being very susceptible to falling to these narco traders because these governments are desperate they need money but they also corrupt in many instances and are happy to cut deals with these guys and then you also have what all that goes along with that you have mass migration you have human trafficking which is i think a huge scourge in this region anything that can trade people are trading including women including endangered species including drugs and weapons and I feel like this region is in for a real shakeup and for greater instability.
1: Instability in the region, particularly in Latin America, comes in two or three forms. It comes in the right wing demagogic form. Maybe you've seen a little bit of that in, in, in Brazil. It comes mm-hmm. in the Argentinian Peronist form. And it comes also in this Bolivarist kind of pan. Latin American nationalist form and then of course finally it comes in the in the communist form as well in the in, in which you see in Venezuela and Cuba and all that how do you see these ones playing out
0: well for sure governments are getting bigger now right because your private sector is shrinking with this sudden stop and with the demand shock that has come as, as a result of this sudden stop in the economy and so i think to your point i think the chance of of well for sure the incumbents the risk of incumbents losing to anybody else is, is is higher when you've got a downturn, but because of the size of government growing relative to the rest of the economy, I think there is a risk that we will see a lot more rejection of whatever exists now and embracing whatever is the opposite of what exists now. So you might find the countries that are you know more on the left might might reject that and try to swing to the right, et cetera. But I think overall in Latin America, we have a culture of being quite left-leaning generally. I think Bolsonaro is not doing a great job of showing us what the other side could look like, you know? And I, and I think, especially with Trump, with the elections in the US, I think a lot of what happens in this region is maybe, a reflection or a reaction, I should say, as to what's happening in the U.S. Because the U.S. is the largest importer of, of everything we produce in this region. They're the largest source of tourism. They're the largest source of remittances. And so they're huge economic power in this region. And so the tone is, is and like I, I said earlier, You know, the, the distinction between how relations were under Obama versus Trump, I think once there is the election in the U.S. and I mean, chances are the incumbent will lose just based on statistics, right? That tone, I f- expect if if the Democrats win, that tone is likely to, to revert more to what Obama's stance was. And then we might see greater cooperation and influence from the U.S. again.
1: So the, the United States disappears from the stage. This allows China to amplify its impact. And Russia. And Russia, and what, what is the Russian angle here?
0: Oil, basically. I mean, they have lots of influence and a big stake in, in Venezuela, but via the Chinese and that, that alliance between those two, they have some influence in other countries in the region as well. Maybe not as large as China, but growing, I think.
1: And then the final player in this is the narco-traffickers themselves. In terms of huge wealth, huge power, and an yeah. ability and an ability to do whatever it takes to make sure that they keep their patch.
0: Of course, and so you have all of these weak governments and weak countries falling to basically to these narcos.
1: For somebody so chilled, Marlon, such good fun and such a laugh to be around, you sometimes deliver <laughs> such a oh, <laughs> a message. Well, I mean, we, the Grim Reaper <laughs> we, strikes from Trinidad.
0: No, we do have some good stories. And maybe what I should do is 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 to be fair and balanced. Let's talk about, for example, Jamaica. You know, I know that, that throughout the world the IMF is demonized as being this, you know, neo-imperialist, neo-colonial, whatever force, I should say. But Jamaica, for example, was under an IMF program from 2012 to last year, seven years. And Barbados, where I am now, is also now under an IMF program. But the IMF brings leadership, solid policy agenda, and implementation, all of which we lack very to a significant degree in this region. And so you find like Jamaica, I mean, post-independence, Jamaica was never a strong, stable economy. And now it is the one of the strongest, most stable economies in the region. And I think they're handling COVID-19 very well. They're a very diversified economy. I'm so proud of what Jamaica has achieved. And they're a huge example to the rest of us as to what what can happen once you've got institutional strengthening what once you've got real leadership and implementation and execution of the policy agenda there's no point having great policies and then you execute nothing and then you have countries like the cayman islands which you know of course as you and i, you and I have discussed many times is you know my favorite country in the region and i can point to how fiscal prudence and solid management of your financial affairs can actually lead to stability and solid growth and they had just before COVID-19 the lowest unemployment ever so did Jamaica the lowest poverty ever in Jamaica just before COVID-19 hit and the sad thing is that this is going to this crisis is going to rewind or undo some of the progress that they've made but the good thing is they are in a much better position than say Trinidad is right now or of course we have Haiti and the Dominican Republic as well with the amount of the huge transmission that they're seeing on that island of Hispaniola—you know that island of Hispaniola has about 22 million people. Yeah,
1: it's enormous. It's extraordinary. It
0: is, and so we. So it's it's so very diverse here in this region. But the experiences have, for many countries, it's been really tough. It's been really tough. But there are some governments that are doing a really good job, and there are some that are
1: struggling Listen Marla take care of yourself darling we will talk to you
0: Thank very you. <laughs> soon You
1: can find Marla at her YouTube channel again somebody who explains economics so fantastically on her own website which is marladukaran.com
2: Marla's always so interesting she always has a really yeah, she's interesting perspective on stuff and she paints a very kind of complicated picture of the Caribbean but what really strikes me about it though Mac is the fact that they just don't have. They, I mean, the developing world in general, don't have the same kind of levers as you say. You know, we have the option to print more money. Yeah, if we want and, to. Uh, and they're they're basically running out of money, running out of dollars. That's absolutely the point, John. And I think that actually summarizes
1: their dilemma much better than huge amounts of you know highfalutin economic taxes. Sure. Basically, they're running out of dollars. We, I'm talking about Europeans and Americans, don't have that problem. We can actually print currencies that people want to hold. That's the difference, right? When they start printing money in those countries, inflation becomes the issue. People don't want to hold their currencies. Their currencies collapse against the dollar, and suddenly they're in a corner. Whereas when we are the Americans start printing money, it's going to take years before our credibility is waned to such an extent. So basically, they're still stuck in this inflation, current account, lack of dollar problem. Now, the fascinating thing is this goes really deep because who prints the money, what it's backed by? Like, is it backed by gold or silver? Or it's called fiat money, the sort of stuff we have, which we we just kind of invented. But the history of it, is really interesting, the history of the gold standard and how it came about and what it did. Yeah. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to talk a little bit about the gold standard and money. Okay. But I'm going to start by telling you about Judy Garland uh, 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 and right. the gold
2: standard. Okay. You're up to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard.
1: Never let it be said that the uh, podcast takes you down unusual routes. And this is a more unusual route. It's really interesting. It's about the Wizard of Oz, economics, and money.
2: Right? What's the What's the connection?
1: The connection is the Wizard of Oz was written about the gold standard. And the gold standard was the monetary system that governed the world from 1860 to 1914 and then again to about 1935. The Wizard of Oz was the first Technicolor movie in 1938. This is significant in this discussion, but let me take you back, right? Fascinating story. We start at the American Civil War. Up until the American Civil War, every state in America printed its own money. And the state bank in every particular area printed its own money. Were they exchangeable between states? They were all exchangeable. The the currencies varied, right? The price of the currency was various different dollars, right? The bank of, you know the expression Dixie? Yeah. Dixie, which refers to the Confederacy, to the south of the state. So Dixie. Dixieland, okay, the yeah. Dixie Democrats. The all Dixie these, Chicks. The Dixie Chicks, exactly, exactly, <laughs> the Dixie Chicks. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, where does yeah. Dixie come from? So Dixie comes from the original 1930, 1830s currency issued by Louisiana, by the Bank of New Orleans. And because Louisiana had two languages, French for the Cajuns yeah. and English for the rest. So the Cajuns yeah. were the descendants of French, JM's people, French Canadians, yeah, yeah. led by General Cadillac, that's where the expression Cadillac. Right. So Cadillac was a French general, and he led the French Canadians from Montreal to a place called Arcadia, yep. which was around the north of Boston. And there was a massive, massive movement of French Canadians from Montreal to Louisiana. And this is called the Louisiana Pocket. Okay. Right. Okay. Became the, right. So there were a lot of people in Louisiana spoke French, yeah. and they became the Cajuns. And the reason they were Caucasians, because they were Canadians, right? And it was all from the Cajun people, right? Right. And so the language of Louisiana in 1830s was largely French, which is where the expression okay comes from. Because okay to the key. So it was actually, ah, yes. it was okay. fellas in Louisiana yes. on the Mississippi throwing ropes from the boats to be pulled into okay. And then the, are we good here? And they'd say, "Okay, we're at the key. Right. That's where it comes from." So, oh, okay, right. okay. So that's right. nice, nice look So anyway, so we're, let's. We're in Louisiana in 1830. Okay. Right. The name of the dollar that was issued by the Bank of Louisiana was DIS, Dix D I X. The French for ten it was a ten-dollar note, and this ten-dollar note became very famous all around the South, and because, of course, most people in the South were English speakers, not French speakers. Dix, Dix, which mm. you spent D-I-X, became Dix, Dixie. Yeah. So Dixieland was the place where that currency reigned. And before the Civil War, the south of the states was richer than the north because it was a massive agricultural.
2: Sure, yeah. Louisiana
1: yeah. was a massive transport, shipping area because, of course, it was on the mouth of the great Mississippi yeah. River. Yeah. All that. And, of course, it was they were making lots of money from slavery, mm. lots of money from slavery as well. So all of the south was quite wealthy. But... Unfortunately, they, had, they didn't have the resources they needed to fight a war because so they didn't have any heavy industry. So what happened was wars, what we know about wars is they cost money. So go from 1830 to 1860, right? So Dixieland is dominated by this currency and the Union side in the American war versus the Confederate side. The Union side were industrial. So both sides borrowed heavily, right? Mm-hmm. Both sides borrowed very, very heavily. But the Union side borrowed less heavily than the Confederate side. The Confederate side eventually ran out of money because they were borrowing from their own people. So what they did was they started to print money. And extraordinarily, the price of a basket of goods in 1860 in the North that cost $100, cost $147 by 1865. So the rate of inflation was about 50%. In the North, in the South... The same basket of goods in 1860, which cost $100, cost $11,000. What? So they had hyperinflation. Right. Massive hyperinflation yeah, yeah. in
2: the South. This is Zimbabwe style. This is
1: Zimbabwe style, exactly. Yeah. Because the Confederate government couldn't borrow from anybody except their own people and they ran out of resources, right? The Northern government didn't have to borrow so much because they had their own industrial capacity to make machinery mm. and, of course, to make guns. And, of course, what did the South need? They needed to buy guns. They didn't have any steel mills of any significant amount. So you end up with the South having hyperinflation. And worse than that for the subsequent problem for the South is the people who lent money to the Confederate government never got anything back. Whereas the people who lent money to the Union government, the Union government became the government of the United States. So they honoured all their debts. Whereas the Confederate government, which was the government of Dixieland and the Confederacy, was destroyed, so right. they dishonored all their debts. So the white middle class that had supported the Civil War, that had lent money to the Confederacy to win the Civil War, not only lost the Civil War, but they were totally wiped out economically. Okay, okay. right, yeah, yeah. So we start the the story after the Civil War. The white middle class and the white agrarian and farming class are destroyed in the South. Mm. The North becomes the United States, the whole thing becomes the United States, and they replace all the currency with the dollar. Right. And they tie the dollar to gold. Right. Okay, and they say this will never fluctuate. So therefore, if you want the price of the dollar to go up or down, you've got to find more gold somewhere,
2: right? Right. So the
1: price is stable. But the problem with that is...
2: This is gold rush time as well. This is gold
1: rush time. And actually, the gold rush bailed them out a little bit in the subsequent end because they actually got more gold. Right. But at the time, so... The dollar was fixed to gold. So that meant two things. One is that any product whose price was falling compared to gold was going to see the people who depended on that product, their standard of living would fall. Right. So think about it. All the Southern whites are dependent, and blacks, who had now been freed. Yeah. Okay? But this is, comes back to this is the nasty part of the story. The Southern whites are dependent on agriculture. At the same time, so you're talking about 1870, 1880, this period, right? Mm. What is the big shock to the agricultural world at this time? It's the emergence of Argentina and southern Brazil, Santa Catarina, this province, Uruguay and okay, Argentina. right. These become huge commodity agricultural exporters. They've never, ever...
2: This we, we spoke about this before when it was the Schumpter moment with the refrigerated chips. Am I right? Yes,
1: you're absolutely right. Yeah, so yeah. the... The invention, the innovation that changed the world more dramatically, maybe even than electricity at that stage, (laughs) was refrigeration, because that allowed meat from Argentina. Now think of it, the price of everything in Argentina was so cheap. Why? Because they destroyed all the Indians. They killed all the Indians. Yes. And they put farmers, so the land was free. Yeah. Argentina and Ukraine have the two most fertile soils in the world for agriculture. Mm as a, and, a, fun- and a function, vast amount vast amount and a function of geology and yeah. ice ages and all that sort of stuff right but the argentinians open up that drives down the price of all agricultural worldwide because this is before the common agricultural policy and all that stuff yeah. there was no farm subsidies yeah so it drives down the price so the price of agriculture falls around the world let's go back to the confederate states of the united states yeah. farmers are always in debt This is something that's gone back to the early, just after the hunter-gatherers, when we actually started to farm, we settled. And the reason is, if you think about the dynamics of harvest, you've got to spend to plant, but you don't don't reap for six months. It's a natural cycle. Natural cycle. So the farmers in every society, the difference, and I actually think this is where banking obviously started. Farmers spent money on seed and planting, but then they had to wait. They had no income until the harvest. So they borrowed during this period, and that's always been fun- that's always been a, a manifestation of mm-hmm. farming all around the world. So let's go back to the states. So the southern farmers were borrowing to tie themselves over, but by the time they had to pay back the money, the price of their produce had fallen because the Argentinian capacity had weighed down. So every single year, for about twenty years, the price of agriculture fell. Yet every time they got into debt, they had to pay back. In gold, or proxy gold, because the dollar was linked to gold. So their incomes right. were being squeezed all the time. Now, what you see in all of the states, the southern states, is the reaction to this. First of all, they're traumatized by the end of the Civil War. Secondly, they're traumatized by the end of slavery,
0: because these yes, are white course. racists, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: Think about it, right? And thirdly, they're traumatized by... The collapse in their farm prices. And fourthly, they have no income because their whole savings were wiped out okay, because they would lent to the Confederate. They're checks. So it's very like Germany in the 1920s. The way in which the Germans were treated by the Allies is not unlike the way in which the Southern Confederates were treated by the Northerners. And the upshot is quite similar too. So the Germans turn anti-Semitic and populist. Yeah. This is the long-term legacy of all this. What happened to the southern states? A party emerges called the Populist Party. And the Populist Party identifies the gold standard as being the problem. And this thing, there started then in America a debate called bimetallism, right? Right. Basically, the southern states wanted silver to replace gold as the commodity that backed the dollar. Because silver is cheaper than gold, Mm -hmm. you could print more dollars. Because what was happening is they were running out of dollars. So they were being impoverished by the lack of dollars. So the populist party wanted silver to be the currency. And this led to a huge and significant popular movement around getting rid of the gold standard. So, you know, it's hard for us to conceive now, but the currency was the single biggest issue in American politics. Now, Just as an aside, the people who really suffered in the South were the freed black slaves because the popular party, which became very popular, never very popular nationally, but won congressional elections and senatorial elections in the South, implemented segregation, implemented the Jim Crow laws, implemented a form of segregation that meant that the position of blacks who stayed in the South was almost as bad as it was when they were. Who's slaves? Jim Crow? Jim Crow is the name of the laws that were introduced. So, you know, all those laws that Martin Luther King was against? All those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black people, the back of the bus, yeah. you know, Rosa Parks, all those. They were all introduced right, in gotcha. the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. So, the interesting thing is, one would have thought that the position of Black people would have improved dramatically yeah after the Civil War, but it didn't, it disimproved, which is why you see this massive migration of Black people away from the states, the southern states, go yeah. to Detroit and, and uh, Michigan or Chicago, New York, all yeah. things. So the popular party made, as its key demand, the end of gold. Now, they believed, rightly so, that gold enhanced financiers, Wall Street, right people who had money, wealthy people, and it was against essential American values. So that the gold standard was enriching the oligarchs. You remember, this is the Gilded Age. So this is of, exactly
2: the same as what's happening now.
1: Precisely, John. So what I'm talking about is yeah. there is a long history in the United States, okay? Right, okay. Of this populism, what is American, okay? Yeah. And we, we forget that America was an incredibly rural society in the 1890s, right?
2: Sure, of course it was. And yeah, it's against
1: yeah. Wall Street, it's against the elites, it's against financiers, all that story. This is the Trump playlist. This yeah. is really old. So Trump... Then you have the Tea Party. Yes. Okay. And yeah, yeah. you go further back, you have this these, these what were called Dixieland Democrats, of which Bill Clinton was originally one. Right. Many, many were Democrats from the South. Linton Johnson was one of them as well. Right. Johnson, okay. you know. They were kind of rough Southerners. Then you go back further to this, the popular party, and even back further to remember we were talking about the uh, the Know Nothings?
2: Yes, yeah, who yeah, were yeah. the
1: Pop party and their original actual name was the Lodge of the Star-Spangled Banner. Right. Isn't that quite good? So let's go back. So we're in 1890, right? 1895. Yeah. The leader of the Popular Party, right? And his name was William Jennings Bryan. Right. And in 1895, the Popular Party was always trying to take over the Democrats. The interesting thing is that the Democrats, who we now associate with liberalism, were actually really reactionary and conservative in the old days. And the Republican Party were the more liberal party. Yeah. Okay. The party of Abraham Lincoln, for yes. example. But, so Jennings is trying to take over this. And at the Democratic Convention in 1895, he makes this speech, and probably the most impressive speech in American history, his great orator. And his final rallying cry to the, the masses was, we shall not let the future of humanity be crucified on a cross of gold. So we identified gold and the gold standard has been the problem. Right. Now, at that particular convention was a journalist, a young journalist called L. Frank Baum. He was covering this for a newspaper. Right. But rather than cover it, he became very excited by the popular party and populism. And he wrote a book, a satirical book called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz,
2: which right. was excellent. Okay. So you're saying that The Wizard of Oz is based on.
1: So it's entirely based on the fight about the gold standard. Right. So now we go to the Wizard of Oz, right? So first of all, the gold standard was identified in the east of America and the northeast. So Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, the financial centers. So in the head of the Southerners and the Westerners, because don't forget, there were huge rural communities in the prairies, huge rural communities in the west of America. Mm. So it was the west and the south were agricultural, and of course, the North and the Northeast were extremely industrial. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was the split. So let's think what happens in The Wizard of Oz. Right? So, Dorothy, <laughs> friend of Dorothy, right? And her dog, there's a tornado. Toto. Okay, well done. And they get blown out of Kansas and they end up in the East. This is where it starts, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason they started in Kansas was because there was a firebrand orator of the populist movement called Leslie. Kesley.
2: Okay. Leslie Kesley. Yeah. Okay.
1: Known as the Kansas Tornado.
2: Right. Okay. But that's why
1: they start in Kansas, right? Yeah. So Dorothy ends up in the east, John, right? And she's with her dog. What's the name of the dog again? Toto. Toto, right? And she heads off on the yellow brick road. Yellow bricks, gold. Right. Gold bars. To find the magical kingdom of Oz where the witches and the wizards reign, right? Think about all this, right? Yeah. And on the way... She meets the Scarecrow. The Scarecrow represented American farmers. So
2: okay. they took Dorothy okay, it as
1: being this naive, average American person in Kansas. They put her into the East, right? The Scarecrow is American farmers. The Tin Man is the American worker, who's also been crucified because wages are low right. in the gold standard, right? Okay. The Cowardly Lion was a reference to our friend Jennings Bryan, who was too cowardly to lead. But they do rediscover their courage at the end. That's the whole right, story, okay, right? okay, yeah, yeah. And the march on the yellow brick road to Oz replicated a march of unemployed men in 1895 to Washington to complain about the fact there, weren't, there wasn't enough money around because the gold standard.
2: So right. Oz is Washington. So Oz, right. no.
1: The Wizard of Oz was actually a real person called Marcus Hanna. And he was a sort of a backroom guy behind the Republican Party, a financier, right? He was the enemy. Okay? okay. And, of course, he was the guy who controlled the levers of financial power in the Emerald City. The Emerald City was Washington.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. I got you. Now,
1: Oz, think about Oz. Oz is an abbreviation. Oz is the abbreviation of the ounce. Yes. An yeah. ounce of gold, which is what gold was always good. Yeah. So he was the wizard of gold. Putting these financial levers to subjugate the Tin Man, the Straw Man, the Lion, yeah, and Dorothy, yeah, and they were forced to go on this yellow brick road. Of course, what was that? That was a road paved with yellow bricks. Those yellow bricks were gold bars. So think of, let's go, the Munchkins, yeah. right? <laughs> the Munchkins in the whole story. These were the sort of stupid average American that couldn't understand what was going on. So the Munchkins were these dumb sort of race. But yeah. his idea was this was simply the kind of simple-minded, brainwashed people of the East who couldn't figure out what was going right. on, that the Wizard of Oz was pulling all the levers in the background. But who's the witch? Now, the Wicked Witch of the West right. was a reference to the Republican Party. And the reason they talked about the West was at the time America was involved in a colonial war with Spain in the Philippines, in the West, oh, okay. in the Pacific. So the Wicked Witch of the West was the Republican Party. And of course, what happens, it's amazing, isn't yeah. it? What happens in the whole thing is, in the end, yeah. the American people rise up against the wizard. Yeah. The wizard is exposed as a fraud, as nothing more than pulling levers. What happens is the scarecrow realises at the end how intelligent he is because the wizard was always saying you're dumb right? and this is the average farmer the tin man he was given a gold axe with a silver blade this was his instrument that he was going to fight everyone with (laughs) that would only work if he continued to grease it with a silver can of oil this was the whole thing remember that and the lion finds his courage again and Dorothy ends up back in Kansas and very interesting
2: it was all a dream in
1: the it was all the, in the book, Dorothy's red shoes were silver. But the reason Judy Garland wore red shoes was because in the first technical or movie, red stood out more than
2: silver. Okay. So That's the they, whole thing. They wore lipstick as well. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So the whole Wizard of Oz, isn't this fantastic? Brilliant. Is a satire, satirical attack on the gold standard written by a supporter of the Populist Party. Now, the problem is, by the time The Wizard of Oz is released in 1938, the gold standard has been abandoned already. And so the vast majority of Americans think The Wizard of Oz is a children's
2: story. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But it's an adult story. And it's an adult story that runs very, very deep. And it's an adult story that emerges out of the poverty of the South, and the poverty of the West, and the perception that the East of America, driven by financiers and the elite, sitting on gold, are screwing the average person. And it all goes back to the settlement after the American Civil War, where the Southerners felt, rightly, that they had been totally and utterly abandoned. But the problem was, although the Popular Party's aim to destroy the gold standard the actual result was to destroy the black population of the south because they bore the brunt like the jews in germany they bore the brunt of the anxiety and the trauma of the white people in the same way the jews ended up being the scapegoats of the nazis jesus it's really it's fascinating stuff and it all goes back to currency and money. Who owns it? Who issues it? Who backs it? And who gets to say who gets it? And that story is as old as Nero and the Roman Empire. And it's exactly what's playing out, not just in the United States, but all over the world right now.
2: So then what did happen to the populist party? Like, is there a link to Trump now?
1: Well, there is a link because if you look at, Trump and his America First agenda. One of the things is anti-elite and the other thing is isolationist. So America can never get involved in wars outside of America. That's part of the whole thinking, right? Now, our friend Jennings Bryan, Williams Jennings Bryan, that orator I spoke about who was the leader of the Populist Party, ends up being submerged into the Democratic Party, Right. Oh. And listen, our friend Jennings ends up being the first Democratic president for many, many years. First Democratic president is Woodrow Wilson. Right. Okay. Actually from the North.
2: Right. Okay. Believe it or
1: not. Right. And who ends up being his foreign secretary? Your man. Your man Jennings, who resigns in 1914. Why? Because America is suggesting it's going to go into the First World War on the Allied side. Because before the Lusitania, there was huge debates within America: of, should right. we go into this war? Should we not? And our friend Jennings resigns because, like Trump, he's an isolationist. Yeah. But the party gets subsumed into the Democratic Party. Why? Because you mentioned about a minute ago, well, maybe more because I was with or non. But you, you were mentioned <laughs> you mentioned the Gold Rush, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what happens is the only way in which you can print more money if you're on a gold standard is if you find gold. So the political impact of the gold rush in Colorado and the finding of gold in South Africa at the same time around Johannesburg is the gold supply of the world expands, the gold supply of America expands, the money supply of America expands, Mm. and our friends in the populist party, they get their increase in money without having to revert to silver. So it's like everything in politics, John. There are events and there are the trend. The right. trend is that Jennings remains in politics but resigns from Wilson's cabinet over the First World War. But the event is the happenstance, the accidental finding of gold in Colorado, which expands the money supply and reduces <laughs> the need for the popular party and they become part of the Democratic Party. That's the story.
2: Wow. That's brilliant.
1: That's good, isn't yeah. it? So I hope you enjoyed that. It was a pretty much a romp around the world from Judy Garland down to the Caribbean, back to the Leaving Cert, the whole nine yards. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, by all means, have a think about supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. We would appreciate it. No end. Talk to you next week.